Well, good morning. How are we doing, everybody? We feeling okay? Are you glad you made it to church this morning? Everyone online, are you glad you're here? I appreciate everyone in the room answering on behalf of everyone watching at home, but so glad that you guys were able uh, to dial in and be a part of service with us. Um, so I didn't anticipate um, sharing this with you, but I feel like it's appropriate and fair with the good time with um, the different announcements around the upcoming pastoral vote um, that's coming up. And uh, I, I just feel it's fair for me to say that um, as Megan and I were getting ready uh, for a transition. We knew that a change was coming. We were ready for a change. We believed that the Lord had got us ready for a change. Uh, and we just had it that we didn't want to come to a church that needed to do a dramatic U-turn. Uh, oftentimes when pastors are in the kind of stage of life that Megan and I are, uh, normally the church that they'll go to to be a part of and, uh, you know, and serve will be a church that's in crisis. It'll be a church where there's, um, you know, big financial headache, attendance has dwindled. Uh, there'll be all kinds of problems, perhaps even moral failures. Um, and for whatever reason, we just felt that the Lord was going to take us to a healthy, strong church um, to be able to continue what the Lord has already started. And so I say that to say that um, we're here we love this church. We believe that God has been faithful with this congregation and this community of believers, that you guys have seen great things happen. We have nothing but honor and respect and love for Pastor Randy, Marianne, um, and if, you know, the vote is coming, and I don't want to count, you know, count chickens before they hatch, but um, it is an honor to be a part of this thing with you. Um, and I know that I'm speaking on behalf of Megan as well, but we love being a part of this. So that's what I'm going to say. It's not exactly a campaign speech, but I just felt it was important to say, um, it kind of felt strange for me to get up here again without addressing the elephant in the room that there is this upcoming vote. Um, but I just want to let you guys know directly from my heart that uh, we love this church. We love being a part of things. And uh, the past year that we've been up here has been absolutely awesome. So that's all I'm going to say on the matter. Is that okay, everybody? All right. Megan, did I misrepresent you in any way? Because it doesn't go well when I do. Okay, thank God for that. All right. So a few weeks ago, we were able to start a series, um, and I, I'm so glad that we did. Uh, as we got into Isaiah 53, uh, and it's been a, a real privilege for me because I've been able to dig into this passage of scripture and I've been able to get some real good stuff out of it that has inspired me and encouraged me and, you know, put a fire underneath me in lots of ways and been a real encouragement in this time. And in some ways, when I first decided, you know, and I first felt it was right and appropriate to do a series on Isaiah 53, I didn't realize it was going to go some of the directions that it's gone. So it really has been a, a real blessing for me. Well, the book of Isaiah itself, it's a book, it's a large book in the Old Testament. It's one of the largest books in the Bible. And it's the book that is mentioned in the New Testament more than any other book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's mentioned over 400 times or alluded to over 400 times in the New Testament. And specifically, the passage that we've spent the past couple of weeks in and what we're going to continue with today, Isaiah 53, just that passage alone is alluded to or quoted or mentioned or referred to uh, around 34 times in the New Testament, according to a book that I wrote. And so Isaiah was a prophet that God raised up in a desperate time in Israel's history and used him to bring strong messages, sometimes of judgment, sometimes of a need of righteousness, a need of repentance. But throughout these messages that were extremely strong, sometimes written poetically, sometimes it's written through narrative, but throughout these extremely strong messages, there's always hope woven into the story. There's always the hope that God is in this thing with them, that God has not given up, that there is another day, that there is, a, there is a hope, there is a breakthrough that's coming, that there is another day that God is going to continue to move, that God is going to continue to fulfill his promises. 
And so the first week that we did this, we looked at uh, how Isaiah 53 spells out in incredible detail uh, the crucifixion that would happen 700 years later when Jesus went to the cross. And we looked at it and the, the overarching thought was that if 700 years before the crucifixion took place, God through the prophet Isaiah was laying out, this is what's gonna happen, this is what I'm gonna do, this is how I'm gonna take care of things, this is how I'm gonna come about repairing the broken relationship between God and humanity, that should give us an extreme amount of confidence. If 700 years earlier, he's laying out the details, 700 years later it comes true, 2,000 years later it's still changing people's lives, that can give us some confidence, amen? And then last week, we looked at uh, the problems that Isaiah said that the prophet was coming to fix. So the, uh, the Messiah, excuse me, was gonna come and fix problems. And then we considered what that means and the promises of God and how that all plays out. Um, and those, of course, are online, uh, either on a YouTube channel or on podcast if you wanted to catch up with that. But for today, we're going to look at what Isaiah 53 has to say about sacrifice. What it has to say about sacrifice and what it means for us. But the first scripture we're going to go to is not in the book of Isaiah. It's actually in the New Testament in a letter that John wrote, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. He loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And this is one of the many times that the Bible makes a connection between love and sacrifice. And I don't think that that's such an unusual idea for us. I think that we would get that even in our own lives is that we sacrifice what we care for and we sacrifice for the things that we love. But the passage that we just read from uh, that was written by John in 1 John, uh, if you looked at verses 7 through 21, we're not going to read all these today, but it talks a lot about the kind of love that happens between us and God and between us and humanity and us and the people around us. And so in our English translations, in just those 15 verses, it says the word love over 30 times. And so in this passage that is all about the love of God and how the love of God transforms me and transforms you so that we can love the people around us, even the really difficult people to love. Anybody related to anybody like that? Anybody sat next to someone like that? I'm seeing way too many hands up. We need to move on right now. But it's the, the love that we have, for the, the love that God shows us, and the love that God has for the people around us, it just transforms our hearts and transforms our lives so that we are able to love people. That's what this whole passage about, the very well-known scriptures uh, in that passage is where it says that God is love. That well-known passage is found in that chunk of scripture in 1 John, uh, where it says that um, you know, we love because he first loved us. It's all in there. It's all about this love that God has. But in the middle of it, and the linchpin of this is that this is all shown and demonstrated and realized and observed and proven because God sent his son as a sacrifice. That the love that God has for us is because of a sacrifice. The love that we're able to have for the people around us is because of a sacrifice. And yet somehow, life has a way of causing us to question God's love for us. I've been there. I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up, but I'm going to guess that you've had life circumstances that have caused you to wonder, God, do you love me? Do you care about me? Have you forgotten about me? Am I alone in this thing? Despite this confidence that we could have, life has a way of causing us those questions. 
God, do you love me? God, am I alone in this thing? But as we just read from John at the corner of this question of does God love me, the response and the answer is yes, because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. So with that in mind, we're going to read the portion of Scripture. It's a long portion of Scripture. that we're going to read Isaiah 53. Now, Isaiah 53 starts in Isaiah 52. And we're going to be starting in verse 13. See, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence, like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands." When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. Now, it's not a short passage of scripture. There's a lot in there. I would even say it's a dense passage of scripture, there's a lot, but the first thing I'd ask you to write down, if you're taking notes today, and I always encourage people to do so, is simply this, God's love is proven in the sacrifice. God's love is proven in the sacrifice, just the same it is for you and I. What we sacrifice for is what we care about. And oftentimes the things that are in the Bible and biblical themes and uh, words that come up in the Bible are unique to the Bible and words we don't use in culture anymore. But sacrifice isn't one of those. Sacrifice is something that we still talk about a lot today. We'll talk about sacrificing financially. We'll talk about sacrificing time. We'll talk about sacrificing sleep so we can get up early and go to the gym in the morning. We'll talk about having a baby as a sacrifice or sacrificing for our career or saving for a vacation as a sacrifice. But this idea of sacrifice is not lost upon us. I was listening to a, a podcast not long ago, and the, uh, the podcast was talking, um, you know, about uh, the nature of sacrifice, and they pointed out that the first time you and I or anybody would experience sacrifice in their lives is as a toddler. 
We first experience sacrifice as a toddler, and it comes about when it's time to share toys with somebody. This idea of, you know, it's, if it's just you, and you've got a toy, happy. Then you get another kid, and the well-meaning parent is like, oh, it's time to share. Suddenly, the kid learns something about sacrifice. Because there's a level of contentment. This is good. But I'm going to give something up with the belief that I'm going to get something better. I'm going to give up this comfort and what I like about playing by myself. I'm going to broaden the circle, share the toys, and what I gain is now I got a buddy. So the sacrifice worked. And that's the first instance, according to this person, that we hear about sacrifice. And this person went on to say that, um, that there is a test that you can do with children. Any parents here with young children? Okay, well, there is a test that you can do with your kids this afternoon, and according to this podcast, this is the biggest determination of whether they will be successful in life or not. Now, how much stock you want to put in that is up to you, but according to them, this will tell you everything you need to know. It's called the marshmallow test. You may have heard of it before, but the idea with the marshmallow test is that you set a kid down, and you put a marshmallow in front of them, and you say, I'm going to put five minutes on the timer... And if the marshmallow is still here, at the end of the five minutes, you'll get two. And what they figured is that the kids that will have the discipline to leave the marshmallow and wait for the timer so they get two, those are the people that go on to do great things. Now again, you put as much stock in that as you want to. I can tell you already, uh, Megan and I have not tried this with the three kids. Uh, The Woodies have not been subjected to the marshmallow test. If they were, I can already tell you the outcome. One of them would wait patiently for the five-minute timer and enjoy the second one. One, as soon as we put the marshmallow down, would forget all about the timer and just gobble it right up. And the third one would snatch the bag of marshmallows out of my hands, run to the bathroom, lock the door, and finish the whole thing. (laughs) Any of you that know my kids, I'll let you try and decide who did what. But that's the marshmallow test. But I came across a quote recently, and it's talking about the same idea with the kids, Uh, this idea of discipline. And this is by a guy called Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor of a wonderful church in Oklahoma. But discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most. Discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most, whether it's sharing toys or waiting patiently for marshmallows or being disciplined with whatever aspect of life. There are two consistent things that come up with this subject and this idea and this theme of sacrifice. Two simple truths about sacrifice. The first is that sacrifice is costly. Not having the marshmallow you really, really want is costly when you're a kid. Sharing toys is costly. Getting up early is costly. Saving is costly. But the second thing, sacrifice believes for something better. It believes that by giving up something now, by sacrificing something now, it is because there is something better that I'm able to enjoy because I went through the routine. I went through the act of sacrificing. The kid finds this with sharing the toys. They suddenly get to broaden their circle, and now they have friends. That's a good thing. Two marshmallows is better than one. Getting health in order and doing whatever sacrifice needs to happen. These are good things. Getting finances in order. Sacrifice, but worth it. This idea of there is something that is costly... But the act of sacrifice, it means that you believe that it's worth it. 
And in the Old Testament, uh, there was um, a, a very detailed a very extensive list of sacrifices that would happen. And uh, the ancient Israelites were not the only people that would do animal sacrifices. It wasn't necessarily revolutionary that they were doing this. Um, but there was a, a level of prescribed things that the Israelites would do and the way that they would have to sacrifice in different times throughout the year for different purposes. Um, it takes up a large chunk of the Old Testament detailing how this was all going to work out. But essentially, you would bring an animal to the tabernacle or the temple for different times, different reasons, um, and then the animal would pay the price, would take on the sins, and that would be a sacrifice to help overcome the sins that were separating people from God. Now, I'm going to back up a second here. So somebody would bring an animal, the priest would lay hands on the animal, and there would be a belief and there would be an understanding, there would be a promise from God that the sins would transfer from the person that brought the animal onto the animal, so the animal would pay the price. And that would mean that somebody was able to enjoy something better. Now, a few months ago, uh, we did a series and we looked at uh, the nature of the temple in the time of the first century, and we talked a bit more about sacrifice there, if it's helpful to check that out. But the passage we just read from Isaiah, I'm going to review this in just a second, so stick with me. But the passage we read in Isaiah, if you looked at it in a different translation, it says that, so he will sprinkle many nations. He will sprinkle many nations. And the Hebrew word for sprinkle is the same word that's used many times in the New Testament, uh, excuse me, in the Old Testament to describe the sprinkling of blood that would happen as part of the sacrificial process. So in the portion that we read, there was this idea, there's already this bells ringing like, okay, he's talking about sacrifice because he's talking about sprinkling the blood. But then he would start talking about lambs and sheep. So instantly your head goes to sacrifice. In the same way that when John the Baptist says, there's Jesus, the Lamb of God, your head instantly goes to the sacrificial process that Jesus would go through. Your head instantly goes to Passover. Your head instantly goes to this passage in Isaiah. But as soon as Isaiah starts talking about sheep, he starts talking about sprinkling, he starts talking about offering, the people's heads instantly go towards this is the kind of sacrifice that we're used to doing in the temple. Heads instantly went there where the priest would lay hands on the animal, transfer the sins on there, and as the animal died, the sins died with them. And in the presence of the Lord, the problem of the sin was temporarily dealt with. And the sacrifice was costly. The cost of livestock wasn't cheap. So much so that there's an exemption in the Bible that if you're too poor to afford the sacrificial cost, if you're too poor to afford the animal that you're supposed to bring, there's an exemption for you to bring in a cheaper substitute to make an allowance for that. If you lived outside of Jerusalem and you had to travel to get to the temple to perform the sacrifices, all the cost of having to travel and accommodation and all the different kind of things to be able to get there, there was a cost in being involved in the sacrifice. But it believed for something better. There was a belief that God's favor would be on their lives. There was a belief that they would be able to continue to be a part of the community of believers. It wasn't just a sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. It was something costly with a belief that something better is coming if we engage in the sacrificial process. Now, I, for one, am very, very happy the New Testament church does not do animal sacrifices anymore. I mean, can you imagine if you had to roll up in here with a lamb... And then me and the rest of the pastoral team are down front sharpening our knives. Thank God that's not a part of our Sunday service. Those of you watching online, you'd have to take care of business in your own kitchen. Thank God we ain't got to do that no more. 
But I read this in a book recently by a guy called John Piper. I'm sure a number of you have read uh, some of his books. He's a very well-respected author, very, very intelligent guy, great biblical expert. But I read this, and I'm going to read this because I think it's helpful for us to catch this from him. This is what it says from John Piper. It was a gloomy reality year after year that the priests in Israel had to offer animal sacrifices for their own sins and the sins of the people. I don't mean there was no forgiveness. God appointed these sacrifices for the relief of his people. They sinned and needed a substitute to bear their punishment. It was mercy that God accepted the ministry of sinful priests and substitute animals. But there was a dark side to it. It had to be done over and over. The Bible says, in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year from the book of Hebrews. The people knew that when they laid their hands on the head of a bull to transfer their sins to the animal, it would all have to be done again. No animal could suffice to suffer for human sins. Sinful priests had to sacrifice for their own sins. Mortal priests had to be replaced. Bulls and goats had no moral life and could not bear the guilt of man. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Again, from the book of Hebrews. But there was a silver lining around this cloud of priestly insufficiency. If God honored these inadequate things, it must mean that one day he would send a servant qualified to complete what these priests could not perform, to put away sin once and for all. So in the Old Testament, the sacrifices weren't perfect, but they were viewed as good enough. But for a large part of the book of Isaiah, the temple where the sacrifices were to take place and had to take place has been destroyed. The priests who performed the sacrifices had been kidnapped and taken to Babylon. So it wasn't possible to make the sacrifices required. So this would be weighing heavily on the people's minds. And last week we talked about how the people that Isaiah is writing this to, the Isaiah 53 passage that are being written to, these are people who are desperate to get back to God. These aren't people that are casual about their faith. These are people who are desperate to rekindle and repair that relationship with God, but they've got no way of making a sacrifice. This has to be weighing heavily on their minds. So as Isaiah starts talking about, okay, you guys, you, you want to come back. You're desperate to repair this broken relationship with God. You want to be part of the community again. You want to enjoy God's favor again. Okay, God's going to send someone that's going to act as a sacrifice on your behalf. This would have got their attention. They wish they could have gone to the temple to make a sacrifice. They wish they could have gone through the costly process of getting the right kind of lamb and the right kind of sacrifice and go there on the right day that they needed to be there. They wish they could have done that, but they couldn't. So as they're facing no possible way to, through the sacrificial system that they were used to, that had been operating for hundreds of years, Isaiah steps in and says, okay, God's going to send a servant and that servant's going to be the ultimate sacrifice, not just for today, but for all time. This is some good news for the people that would have heard this. And I'm going to skim through Isaiah 53 and just pick out some of the verses that directly hit on this idea of sacrifice. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. And the first week we looked at this, we looked at it, and I would say inconclusively, we'll be able to say that this is Jesus. I don't believe there can be any doubt that this is Jesus that is being talked about here. It was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. 
Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Almost precise language that was talked about the Old Testament sacrificial system. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. His life is made an offering for sin, and because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Can you imagine the people hearing this for the first time, desperate to make a sacrifice, wishing they could make a sacrifice, but there is no possible way for them to do so, and then they hear about God stepping in and making a sacrifice on their behalf. This would have been some good news for God to step and say, I'm going to pay the price. And I'm promising that it'll be better. I'm going to pay the price of sacrifice. And my sacrifice, I promise, is going to make it better. Hebrews 10.10. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. We see it again, the cost, the body of Jesus Christ, the cost of sacrifice. But we see that the promise is it makes it better, that we are made holy, that our relationship with God is repaired and restored once for all time. And in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is oftentimes a a way of painting a picture for us to understand fully of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and what it means for us to live for him. But in the Old Testament, when you would bring an animal to the priest, the priest would inspect the animal. The priest would inspect the animal that you would bring for a sacrifice to make sure that it was without defect, to make sure it was perfect, to make sure it was without blemish. And if the priest judged that the the animal was perfect, the animal could pay the price for you. The animal could take your sins on itself and die in your place. The priest did not examine the person bringing the sacrifice. They inspected the animal. For New Testament believers, what that means for you and it means for me is that when God, acting as priest and acting as judge, he is not poking around in our lives looking for our shortcomings. He's not looking for where we've messed up. He is not ready to call out our sins and hold them against us. He is not gonna give us the punishment that he deserves. He is looking at our sacrifice, which is his perfect son, And he says, you who've put your faith in him are white as snow. Come on, everyone. That's some good news. We've talked about sacrifice being costly and sacrifice believes for something better. And it's important and it's right that we remember the cost of the cross. The cost of the cross. We've said the sacrifice is costly and the cross came at a price. It came at a cost. I think that there was a reason, and this is a much bigger topic that we're certainly not going to get into today, but there's a reason that through many of the parables and through many of the teachings of Jesus, as he was talking about forgiveness and he was trying to help people understand the nature of forgiveness and what it meant and uh, you know, the impact that it has for us, he would oftentimes talk about finances, not because he was trying to teach them about money, but because he's trying to teach them about forgiveness. And he would use the idea of forgiving a financial debt to help people understand the kind of forgiveness that we can have from him and we are to extend to others. And if there's a financial debt and it's forgiven, someone has to bear that cost. It's not just magically disappeared. 
If there is a debt, especially a significant debt that is forgiven, somebody has decided that they are going to absorb that cost. And as we think about the cross, and we think about the physical uh, torment that Jesus went through, the incredible, brutal physical abuse that he went through on the cross, that was an incredible cost, an incredible sacrifice. But something that I don't think gets said often enough I want to share with you, and this is from Matthew 27, 46. Many of you will know this verse. I want to consider the significance of it with you. At about three o'clock, this is Jesus while he's hanging on the cross. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, why have you abandoned me? Your translation may say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is Jesus quoting Psalm 22. But as Jesus is on the cross, taking on the sins of the world. Just like we read the Old Testament annals would do, they would take on the sin of the world, the sin that separated you, me, everyone else from God, separated Jesus from the Father. And for the first time in eternity, the Father and the Son had a broken relationship because of the sin that Jesus had taken upon himself. You and I know the pain of being distant from God. This is the first time Jesus experienced that, that separation from the Father. As we talk about the cross, we talk about the physical pain. I've never been crucified, of course, but I can't imagine the incredible physical pain. But add on top of that, now suddenly the loneliness, the fear, the anxiety, the desperation. Many of us know it very well of being separated from the Father. Jesus experienced that for the first time on the cross. It came at a great price. That's why the New Testament writers will describe the cross as a ransom or a high price or a costly redemption. But it was because Jesus believed there was something better. The sacrifice was made because Jesus believed it was worth it. Verse that we've read a number of times in the past few weeks, but Hebrews 12, 2, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. He enjoyed the beating. He enjoyed the scourging. He enjoyed the whipping. He enjoyed the crown of thorns. He enjoyed the nails through his hands. He endured being upright. He endured the shame of being hung naked, alone, on a cross, completely, completely disgraced and separated from the Father. He did it because he knew the joy of the other side of this. He knew the joy after that first Easter Sunday when you and I could come into healed, whole, pure relationship with the Father was possible. He did it for you, and he did it for me. Come on, if one person's going to clap, we may as well all do it. But life has an incredible way of causing us to forget all of this, to question the love of God, to question, does God, God's out there. Does he care about me? Is he interested in my life? But God's love isn't proven in life circumstances, but on the cross. God's love isn't proven in life circumstances, 
but on the cross. I want to share with you uh, a promise from the Bible. And this is the least popular uh, promise in the whole Bible. John 16, 33, here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Ain't nobody putting that on a coffee cup. (laughs) Ain't no fridge magnets with that on. You will have many trials and sorrows. And if you're anything like me, when life hits, it brings up those tough questions. When this promise comes true in my life, I don't know about you, but I often find myself like, oh God, you even care about me. God, uh, was my sinfulness and my selfishness, was that too much this time? Am I, do I have to go through the rest of my life without knowing your love anymore? That all comes up for me. And it would be really helpful if I would keep reading the verse where Jesus says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And we talked about this a lot last week. It was a lot of the, uh, the subject that we talked about last week, that life is unfair, that life isn't going how it's supposed to go, but he has overcome the world so we can have an eternal confidence that one day, it might be tough right now, but one day it won't be like this. One day we can have our confidence and hope in him. And my hope for me, and so my hope for you, is that when life hits, And those questions of, does God love me? Does God care about me? Does God have me in mind at all? Is what I've thought about God's love for me, is it true at all? My first reaction might well be fear or pain or frustration or anger. But I hope that for me and for you, that the amount of time it takes for me to get back to the cross and reorientate my eyes back to the cross, my hope is that that length of time gets shorter and shorter. When life hits, we're not robots. We might be angry, we might be scared, we might be fearful, but my hope is that the amount of time it takes me to reorientate myself back to the cross and the love that was demonstrated for me on the cross 2,000 years ago, my hope is that length of time gets shorter and shorter for me. And as I grow in faith, that that's how my growth would be observed, is that when life comes, when it's flat out unfair, when life is going in a way that I wish that it wouldn't, when I've got all kinds of really good reasons to freak out, The amount of time it takes for me to get myself back with him, my eyes fixed back on what he did for me 2,000 years ago, gets shorter and shorter. I got a couple of questions for you. Hopefully this is helpful and hopefully this is, uh, hopefully this is gonna be a bit of a challenge. But a couple of questions that maybe this week you'll have a moment to think through and pray about. But the first thing is, how have circumstances shaped the way you understand the love of God? How have circumstances, not the cross, but circumstances, shaped the way you understand the love of God? Has it been disappointment? Has shaped the way you understand the love that God has for you? Is it frustration or heartbreak? Is it disappointment? Is it being certain that it was gonna go one way, but it went another? Is it be the unbelievable betrayal you may have gone through with the people that promised you that they would be good to you? What is it that has shaped the way you understand the love of God? And the second question, Have you forgotten how much God loves you? Have you forgotten how much God loves you? If so, take time. Remember the cross. Reorientate your eyes to the cross. The price that was paid. The joy that you could have a healed whole relationship. The joy that was in front of him that kept Jesus going on the cross even though he'd been separated from the Father for the first time in all of eternity the physical pain. Fix your eyes back on the cross. First, I want to share with you. 
Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death, the natural consequence of sin, the natural consequence of the bad choices that I've made, that you've made, that everyone else has made, the natural consequence of those things is death. But, thank God for the but, the free gift of God is eternal life because of his sacrifice, because of the cross, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now the phrase here, free gift of God, it's important to remember, it's free for us, but not for him. It's free for us. It wasn't for him. It came at a price. And uh, I don't know if you guys are big movie fans or not, but if ever there's a movie and it takes place in outer space, oftentimes the plot will go along the lines of something happens, some kind of mechanical failure, and so breathing oxygen has become a commodity. You know what I'm saying? Like, have you seen a movie like that? Like, I'm thinking Apollo 13, there's a couple of others where, you know, breathing has suddenly become a problem. And so the astronauts are very, very aware and very, very conscious of conserving the air that they use, of how they can get more oxygen, the amount of time it's going to take to get back to Earth where they can breathe again. But the truth is, is that an astronaut stuck up in space with limited oxygen supplies doesn't need oxygen any more than you or I. The only difference is they're aware of it. We take it for granted. They don't look at the oxygen as a free gift to be treated cheaply. We look at oxygen as easy come, easy go. And I wonder if as a, as a nation, I would even say we've heard over and over again that God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Jesus died for you. He rose again for you three days later. God loves you, God loves you. He went to the cross to pay the price for your sins. I wonder if we've heard it so many times that we've started being cheap about it because it comes so freely. Free for us but not for him. You may be here today and you may have heard many, many times that God loves you. But you may have never considered that it came at an extreme price and that treating the love of God, treating what happened on the cross 2,000 years ago as cheap is an absolute scandal. And you may be here today and you may be ready to say, you know what? I want to start taking this love of God thing seriously. I want to take it seriously. I want to start following Jesus. I want to start following God. I believe He loves me. I believe He died for me. I want to get real about it. And if that's you, my friend, I'd love to pray for you today. So I want to invite everyone here, if you just close your eyes, bow your heads. Those of you at home, I want to encourage you to take a moment and think seriously about what really matters right now. But if you're here today and you'd be honest enough to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not living in a good relationship with God. I've been casual about the love of God or I've never thought about the love of God. I've never cared about it before, but I wanna start. I wanna start following God today. I wanna heal my relationship with Him. 
I want to treat the love of God as something precious and invaluable in my life. I'd love to pray for you. So I want to invite you, if that's you today, if you can just put your hand in the air, just so I know who we're praying for when we pray in just a moment. Amen. Anybody else here? Those of you that are home, you can click that button to say, I raise my hand. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Thank you. I don't want to rush this. If you want us to pray for you in just a moment, just raise your hand. I promise we won't embarrass you. We won't do anything weird. But when we pray, I'd love to know who we're including. Anybody else today? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I'm glad we waited for you. Amen. Amen. A word of life, church, can we please celebrate the people who have made that incredible decision today to follow God, to cherish the love that He has for us. We're going to pray a prayer together. We do this at the end of every service. The words are on the screen. I want to invite you to pray along. I'll say a line and then you bounce it back. And if you're praying this for the first time, I believe that there's power when you pray a prayer like this. So come on, everybody. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, everybody, one more time, let's celebrate. Amen.